Zito from seventh to first in the final event. You are a champion. And Oleksiak has done it! The girl from the six has got six Olympic medals. The substitute for Canada just about gets it through. It's a glory gold for Canada. Kathy Lifting goes up to Graham, takes the lead, looks a winner, draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory, a magnificent performance. It is Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast coming your way today for another athlete interview. A first on the show today, not our first canoeist on the show, but our first canoe slalom athlete on the show. We are speaking to Tokyo Olympian from Australia, Daniel Watkins, who also creates history, well, not really history, joins a very select group of people on the show to be from Tasmania, my home state, and a boy from the south of Tasmania as well, joining Tristan Thomas on that level. But it's a great chat here with Dan. We learn about his path throughout the sport, his aspirations for the Olympics, how realistic Rio was before switching focus towards Tokyo, how the delay helped him towards that goal, and just his amazing performance. Of course, Dan finished ninth at the Olympic Games, created headlines around the world, has been labelled the Brad Pitt of Canoe in the Olympics, which uh, we talk a little bit about in this interview as well. And just where the sport's heading, obviously a lot of exposure to canoe slalom in Australia with the success of Jess Fox, how that's looking towards Brisbane, and a unique take on just why building a new facility at Brisbane for the Brisbane Olympics might not necessarily be a great thing, but uh, it's an interesting perspective to hear from an athlete who is involved in that. So great chat here from Dan, learning about it. So sit back, relax, and listen to our chat with Australian Olympic canoe slalom athlete, Daniel Watkins. always get pumped and excited on this show to talk to any Olympian, but particularly when that Olympian is from my home state in Tasmania, our only second ever Olympian to come from the southern half of the state too, so uh, that's extra exciting. Competed in the Tokyo Olympics in canoe slalom and caused a bit of a stir, not only for his great performance, but also because he was nicknamed the Brad Pitt of canoe kayaking. And I've never spoken to somebody who's been referred to as the Brad Pitt from their sport before, so I'm extra excited today. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome to Off the Podium, Dan Watkins. Dan, mate, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ben. It's pumped and exciting to always talk this, but, I mean, have you lived down the Brad Pitt moniker? Like, is this something that you've kind of lived up to a little bit now <laughs> moving forward that you get that nickname? Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely faded away a little bit, but I still constantly hear it from my mates. They uh, throw it back at me pretty common. <laughs> well, well, we'll try and fit in about 20 more times in this interview to see how that goes. But I'm, you, I'm sure you will. <laughs> you grew up Grove, Tassie, uh, obviously uh, sort of in the Huon Valley. Now, it's where Willie Smith's apple shed is. So you've got some good cider down that way, right? So uh, do you just grow up surrounded by apples and just drink lots of cider while you're also hitting out in the boat and paddling? Uh, yeah, no, de- definitely grew up around uh, around all the orchards there. Um, yeah, used to build mountain bike jumps in the paddocks of Willie Smith's orchards with uh, the son of the owner of the cidery. So, wow. yeah, pretty much as you'd expect. 
exciting times. I mean, obviously the Apple Isle, the Huon Valley, where it's most known for there. But I mean, it's a great location, obviously great wilderness, uh, lots of great areas down that way. But sort of was that you lived off the wilderness enough that that kind of led you in to, to the boat and to canoe? Kind of what was that journey that took you into the sport? Um, I think that's one avenue of the sport that definitely kept me in it. It's very wilderness-based in Tasmania. Um, as soon as we get into the sport, we're training camps, are literally training camps. We're in tents. We're up in the Highland Lakes or up north somewhere by a river camping. Um, I mean, a lot of other people in the sport, like on the mainland, it's a lot more kind of classic venue-based and you just drive somewhere for training and you don't have to kind of go out into the wilderness. Uh, so that's one thing that kind of got me into the sport. And then the other was just a bit of luck, I guess, that um, – my dad enjoyed doing a little bit of flat water kayaking, um, joined a canoe club and worked next door to uh, Peter Eckhart, who was running a kids come and try canoe slalom program. Um, and his son was, was basically the same age as me. And we, he ended up kind of running a program and got me into the sport that way. Great. Which, because we've had a few flat water us on the show before you're our first slalom because i guess is that just the the general path for, for slalom athletes that you start on the flat water and then kind of transition once you give that a try or do many athletes just go boom i'm straight onto the rapids give this a crack and sort of never look back uh i think anyone who gets into it you know as a you know 10 to 13 year old which is kind of most of the kids who kind of go all the way through the sport um they're definitely starting on flat water it's kind of at least a summer you know of just flat water getting basic skills up before you can get on white water i think a lot of people who just try the sport you know muck around on the flat water get the idea and then jump on the white water but it's a bit different when you're like 10 years old i guess yeah for sure and in terms of other sports where you just typical kid playing sort of everything you, you could and sort of giving you a crack at all the different other sports too uh yeah i gave everything a little bit of a crack i was never that great at ball sports and always kind of tended to go towards individual sports. Um, but yeah, didn't really take anything to any level or at all really before finding kayaking. What was it a thing that every four years you'd switch on the Olympics and kind of tune into that as well? And did sort of any time you, you watched it, if you did think like, well, this could be something to achieve if you know, I, I get all right in canoeing. Um, I think I never really followed the games much until I was maybe had started kayaking for about a year or 18 months into the sport. And at that point, like I knew of the Australian representatives and um, yeah, I followed them and watched along and thought that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Maybe I could do that one day. And then yeah, yeah probably a few, few years later, set my sights on it a bit stronger. Fantastic. And in terms of, doing it in tasmania i mean where do you go where where are the the white water courses where where are the the ones that perhaps if our tassie listeners are listening and they want to give it a go like where where are the places to be um the most common place that we end up training based in hobart is um just a little rapid where we've got some training gates strung up about 10 kilometers north of new norfolk on the derwent river um so yeah be driving out there couple of times a week for training. Uh, and then in the central highlands at Brady's Lake, we have a really, you know, good quality Olympic venue size, um, rapid, which is uh, kind of semi man made. Um, the club kind of has worked with excavator drivers and moved in rocks and, you know, really designed and built a really fantastic venue there. So, you know, it doesn't run all the time and 
it is in some, uh, you know, at 700 meters elevation up in the lakes. So it's only a couple of times of the year, really can go there and get good weather. And then at the north of the state, there's uh, a couple of training sites that are really good for kind of beginner intermediate levels. Like on the fourth river, there's a good canoe club set up with a slalom course. And then in the Mersey Valley, we've got another slalom course there as well. Great, great. Because it's a sport I can imagine that, you know, a facility to build a, a, a canoe slalom course is obviously it's a it's a big thing to build and, and not something that you just build every five minutes. So I'm guessing you do rely a lot on sort of natural courses where you can write because what in Australia, we've only got the one in Penrith. So I kind of, I guess you only, you've got to manage this a little bit with the natural courses. Yeah, pretty much exactly. Uh, so the one at the Mersey River is completely and utterly natural. We've just strung gates up and just kind of lucky the placement of the rocks works quite well. Uh, and then the one in the fourth river has some basic excavation works done to it, but that's, that's a lot easier than building a concrete, um, you know, system like Penrith and having to pump water. And then the same with the Brady's Lakes course. So it's between two hydro dams, water's running there. Anyway, we've just gone in, placed rocks to make it, you know, usable white water. Is there sort of a preference when it comes to, you know, competing or training like with a natural course obviously it's all completely natural that's why it's a natural course versus the man-made ones which obviously they can sort of alter a little bit too like is there much of a difference when it comes to training or if there are competitions on the venues themselves uh yeah there is quite a difference i find between them i prefer the natural courses and yeah enjoy racing on the natural courses but it's quite rare now the whole sport's really moving towards being 100% raced and training based on artificial courses because, yeah, as you said, there is that ability, ability to tune the course and change the course and make, you know, minute alterations is really good, but it's expensive because you've now got to pay to the water. We're training on venue in Tassie. Um, it's a different style of water because when you place a rock in a river, if the river doesn't, except that rock there, it's going to push it out of the way. It will roll away. Um, so the water has a lot of flow. Um, cliche is that kind of sounds, but it tends to make different features than in the artificial courses because it's just, you know, plastic bollards bolted to the bottom of concrete. And they can put it anywhere and just disrupt the water. And they make really cool, really amazing waves that are really useful and you can do a lot of moves on them, but they don't simulate the flow and feeling of a natural river as much. The the training aspect must be absolutely insane because uh, I mean, with any sort of a uh, sport where the, the power's coming from your arms and everything along those lines, but I mean, compared to a flat water kayaker or, or canoeist, essentially you're doing the turns, you know, you're battling with the water and everything along those lines. So, I mean, is it just all upper body in a gym? Like, I mean, kind of what sort of uh, are the workouts that a canoe slalom athlete is really focused on and how much are you in the gym versus actually being out there on the course? Uh, that's a good question. There's, I think this sport in particular has so many different body types and people training differently and still getting to the top. Um, I myself do gym probably three times a week and that's mostly upper body and core. Some paddlers out there don't do any gym. They just spend more time in the water. Depends as well, like what your access to water is like in each country. Um, but it's just such a skilled based course that time on the water is just the most key thing. And it's the most specific training you can do and the most important training you can do. And I think that's why 
most people peaking in our sport are in their 30s at least. And they're the guys are winning world champs and the winning Olympic games because it, you know, it takes 20 years is to really get a solid amount of skill-based learning under your belt on the white water. It's a fascinating aspect, which I was going to ask you about was that sort of that age part of it, because there aren't too many sports out there where you do sort of get to that age and kind of that's when you're really at your peak. So, I mean, how is that knowledge knowing that sort of growing up and that that's where you're going to be? I mean, I'm sure there are definitely people younger than that who are successful, but is that a case of knowing, say, you go to your first Olympics at your age that you think, well, this is just clearly the beginning. You know, I'm not going to be hitting my peak maybe for the next one or the Olympics after that. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting way to look at it. I think everybody is still just looking to, you know, perform their best and assume that, you know, in the next year or two, you know, they're going to be where they want to be. And yeah, it doesn't necessarily happen. And then, you know, if you miss your targets, you can look at it that way and go, well, you know, I'm 25 and, you know, the guy who won was 32, like that's, that's fine. But yeah, never really gone into the sport and gone, all right, well, like, you know, the most recent world champion was 32. That means I can kind of like, you know, just keep, keep cruising for another 10 years, you know, hope I get there. Like you're always assuming you're going to be able to push the boundaries as quick as you can. That mentality where it's just like, boom, I'm going to get out there. Another aspect of the training too, I can imagine that's very important is the agility aspect of it. Because obviously when you're hitting those gates and you've kind of got to shift the body around to not go as close to the gates as, as, as possible. So how do you fixate on that? And particularly from a sitting position as well. Like, I mean, I can imagine that itself brings its challenges. Yeah. Uh, we definitely do a lot of technical training and kind of the best way we do that is we shorten up because we have a 90 second race that's 300 meters long and we break that into quarters or fifth lengths sections. So you can hit it with the intensity you would race it at, but you're recovering, you're not getting completely lactic, you know, you're doing maybe 20 second efforts and you just, doing a bunch of gates just on repeat and you're doing those turns and you're throwing your body around and you're doing those really agile moves. That's like a whole chunk of my training. The way I approach the sport, I mostly do technical training. Um, and yeah, the other thing is you kind of touched on before a little bit with like how we train is we probably don't train that many hours compared to a lot of our athletes in other sports because it's so demanding when you're on the white water that after an hour maybe an hour and a half you, you don't have that actual like you know muscle elasticity and response to actually be performing the moves you're trying to do and it's at that point you're just practicing poor technique and you're better off actually getting off and resting and you know if you just want to tire yourself you're better off just you know doing it on some cross training to get that fitness up but if you're just trying to tire yourself out on the white water you end up just practicing you know, poor technique, which is not what we're looking for. So it almost sounds in a way, say like a marathon runner or a, a distance race walker, where do you kind of tune the body in a competition week to kind of peak at that moment rather than constantly hitting the track of the, the course, say like as a hundred meter sprinter would be doing constantly because it's a different way of, uh, you know, treating your body. Yeah, I guess so. Um, again, people have different ways that they approach it. Me personally, I probably replicate a race run length effort only maybe two or three times a week in my whole training schedule. Other than that, I'm doing shorter lengths or completely longer fitness lengths. 
which then do you, with your endurance and the different levels of that, when it comes to, say, the flatwater guys, do you, do you sometimes like want to challenge them and just be like, hey, you've got it easy. You're going in a straight line. You come out to the course and they're maybe going, wow, it's not that easy. You come out there. You you guys are doing this, that and everything else. Because like, I don't know if there's much of a rivalry between that to kind of show off those skills that you're learning versus what they're learning as well. No, there, there isn't much of a rivalry, but I reckon we would be a fair bit better if we say went and did a, a combined, you know, they did our race and their race and we did the same thing and combined the times together. I think they would be a bit further behind in our discipline than we would be in theirs. <laughs> I'd love to see it. Maybe we can do some sort of like combination at another Olympics as well. But when it comes to like course education, uh, you know, how often are you studying? Like if you've got a brand new course, so for example, you go to Tokyo, you've never, you've never competed on that before is before you hit it, are you able to sort of get some sort of visualization, like how much does sort of just a general map help you in canoe slalom or is it really until you hit the, the water that that's when you really get a vibe of it? Uh, a map doesn't help at all. A video of people actually paddling the course can be pretty helpful, but still until you see it in person, it's hard to really picture those moves. The best thing is getting there, getting on the water. And once you've been on the water once or even twice, suddenly looking at, videos of other people paddling is a lot more relevant and can actually learn a little bit just off watching a uh, training video of other athletes or re-watching training video of yourself or just in between training sessions going out and watching other people live training you know whilst you're resting uh just seeing what they do how the water treats them you know because there's so many different combinations on a course there's like at tokyo there's maybe 40 different uh, eddies, which are the um, slow patches of water on the side of the river where an upstream gate can be put. So, and the upstream gate could be put deep in that or close to the current and or high or low. And you've got 40 of those times, all those different combinations where the gate could be. And you've got three, four weeks of training before the games. And it's unlikely that you're going to be able to try every single co- possible combination there is before the race. So, you're watching as much as you can what other people are doing and just trying to learn through them as well. So that on race day, when they do set the course and you've never done it before, you at least might've seen someone else do it, or you've done similar enough things that you can kind of predict how the water would respond to you. So then once you hit that race run, you, you're set, you got a plan and you're pretty close to being able to execute it. So generally a course itself is not actually set until competition day. So you don't know what that's going to be until your actual race day. Yeah, we don't know the combination of the gates and where they will be until the day before the race. And that is released after the last training session when everyone is off the water, course is shut, the, um, the gates are constructed, and then we watch a demonstration run of half a dozen people. They do the course in sections and then they do a race run water stays on for maybe another half hour, an hour. You're just allowed to walk up and down the bank and look at it. And then the next morning, same thing just before the race. There will be water on, time to inspect the course. A couple of forerunners will do a run through before the race and then you're on. Wow. That's crazy to think that. I, I can't think of many other sports where the kind of that's it. I mean, you don't go to a, you know, Albert Park at the Australian Grand Prix and they go, oh, well, yeah, we're going to add four corners to the course tomorrow. You've got yeah, two seconds yeah. to learn it. Like that's that's crazy. Yeah, it's a really cool way and it's individual and I love it. They've experimented a few years ago at some World Cups of, hey, what if we have everyone practice the course? And they got rid of that and I really like it. It it really makes 
kind of risk taking a little bit more exciting. I think if everyone practiced the course, it would come down to that. Like there's one fastest way to do it and everyone can do it. And it's who can actually get closest on the day to that rather than, I feel like there's a bit of magic in having no one done the course that someone might, you know, take the risky move or find a new line that no one else has seen because no one's done it. And only mm -hmm. one person thought of doing it this way. And someone might be able to make some time and, you can see people come through with amazing runs and win by five seconds, you know, which doesn't really happen on a sport at that level. That's only 90 seconds long. Yeah. It's crazy to think that. And is there a case of two that you might have certain designs where it's like, okay, this is going to be a very, very technical course. You've got more eddies, you've got this and that. And some are just like flat out speed. Like we're not going to, you know, do that a little bit. Let's just, let's turn it up a little bit. You've got to be extra fast today. Yeah, definitely. You can look at some courses and go, all right, this is pretty easy everyone's going to be able to do this. Everyone's going to do it the same way. Time's going to be really close, you know? And then you can look at a harder course and go, all right, this is really technical. It's got a lot of whitewater features. Uh, this is going to break up the field a little bit, you know? And do you if have a preference for yourself? Like, is it kind of, are you more on like the technical side of things, the speed? Like, do you sort of have a preference on a course? I prefer the technical uh, course designs, especially ones that are technical, but use the water well, because there's also some technical courses that fight the water where gate combinations are really hard to get, but it's because they work against the water. And then some really good course designers will set really hard moves, but they're hard because you have to use, you have to surf a wave across the river or something, and it's really technical. I don't like that kind of course design. Do you have course designers that if you know they're involved, you're like, oh, shit, not Lenny, he's terrible, and then you go to another one, oh, Frank, he's great, I love his courses. Like, Do you kind of have to see who's designing that specific course for the specific event? Um, it happens a little bit like that. They do rotate it around in the World Cups quite a bit. Um, so it's often you might not know the course designers very well, but World Championships and Olympics are normally the same course designers, and you kind of know like their reputation and you can look back and see what they've designed before and, you know, it won't give you an idea of what the course will be at all, but you can go, all right, like it's probably going to be pretty tricky. It must be a fun thing to get into, I can imagine. Like is it something that when you hang up the paddle you can get into that, like, kind of like a golfer who maybe like, you know, eventually goes like, oh, I'm going to get into to golf course designing because it sounds like that would be fun. Yeah, potentially. Um, they, they're all ex-athletes and or ex-coaches, so – it's definitely an avenue people could take. Yeah. I mean, I don't think if I sat there and right now, like, cool, put one there, one there, one there, one there. I have no fucking clue what I'm talking about. So I guess you kind of probably be, need some background in it. It'd be interesting to see what it would be like if someone with no background <laughs> just, you know, gave it a crack. I'd probably make like a video game, right? Like, going like ah, this would be epic. Like, you know, let's have yeah, a jump. Yeah. Let's do a 360 loop. Like, screw it. Like, you know, get you guys training a little bit extra for that kind of stuff, which, uh, you know, would be exciting. When you sort of progressed through, uh, made your junior debut 2011, uh, moving your way up through the ranks, you know, going back to that notion of Olympics, seeing that it might be something possible, do you set yourself a goal? Like, was, say, Rio a potential for you or was it kind of always realistically you look towards 2020 as a potential Olympic debut for yourself? Um, once I was on the junior world championships team, I was definitely looking at Rio. Um, and I had a little bit of a plan, you know, after I finished school, I was taking a gap year. I did a lot of kayaking in Europe, um, had a debut World Cup in 2014. And kind of, you know, was on the under-23 team and had been on every junior team up to that point. And I thought, 
all right, if I want to go to Rio, I've got to make the senior team in 2015 and then go to the senior world cups. And, you know, I won't be good enough to go to Rio if I don't have that senior training in 2015. So I kind of set that as a goal. Um, I, that goal got onto the senior team. And so that puts me kind of top one out of three chance, I guess, for going to the games. Still a longer shot. I was definitely the other two boys ahead of me were a fair step ahead of me. But I was on track to be competitive enough as I wanted to be to go to Rio. But I ended up actually breaking my collarbone at the end of the 2015 season and had nearly three months off. And by the time I got to the 2016 selection, I was, yeah, just a little bit on the back foot as well as already being, you know, not expected to go. So at that point, it was very much like, you know, set my sights on Tokyo. And yeah, two years out of Tokyo was looking pretty good for me, to be honest. So yeah, if it was maybe like a, a 2018 Olympic Games, it probably would have worked all right in my career. But yeah, 2020... Wait where it went not not sure how well you would have been at skiing to make that olympics but yeah different, yeah, yeah. Sort of different versions um but i mean collarbone was that done in competition how do you break your collarbone in uh, canoe slalom um pretty much the way most injuries uh made uh are gotten as canoe athletes is from mountain biking wow <laughs> just <laughs> something a little bit off the track, basically. You were telling your coach, collarbone, uh, mountain biking. Yep, all right. Thanks, Dan. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's how that one came about. It was, uh, yeah, a bit, bit of mountain biking in uh, the off-season. <laughs> that, that, that sounds like the, uh, the the additional triathlon that we don't know about. you got mountain biking, canoeing, and then you probably have to run back up the hill or something, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, use, that would work. A extreme triathlon uh, pretty much when it comes to that. When it comes to the differences between the C1 and the K1, like, do you always sort of focus on one or the other and do the other as kind of a side one, or do most sort of slalom athletes kind of treat them equally along the way? Pretty much all the men pick one very early on as a junior, um, maybe around the end of juniors at the latest and specialize in that. And all the women are mostly doing both at the moment, just because Lady C1 did only become its own class 12 years ago and make it into the World Cup circuit. So at that point, no dedicated uh, Lady C1 paddlers. So they were all just ladies K1 paddlers starting that sport. And then, you know, it's kind of taken 10 years to get to the point now where there are women who are at the top of the sport who started as C1 because they only started the sport 10 years ago. But yeah, most women do both. Most men only do one. And yeah, I'm probably the only guy who's making World Cup semifinals who does both. Wow. Um, which, yeah, I went for the Olympics in both. And yeah, I made the C1, but I was actually Olympic reserve in the K1 as well. Right. Which, is there much difference when it comes to training aspects, going back to that training element? Because, uh, I mean, you know, sort of double-handed versus one-handed on paper looks like there's a big difference, but I'm not sure if that kind of is the same when it comes to the training aspect. The way you train is the same. Um, but, yeah, the way you paddle each boat is very different. So by doing two classes, you need to really – you need to be very fit have a good base level of fitness, be able to recover really well and then focus more of your time onto the whitewater aspect because there is a, like a, 
like a crossover. Some stuff you learn in C1 will benefit you in K1 and vice versa, but it's not like a complete swap over. You know, there's maybe 50% swaps over between the two. So to get that, you know, 100% trading load, you've got to be kind of training 150% of what someone in one class would be in a technical aspect, I reckon. Do you, when it comes to, you know, doing well in, in both, like, do you, like, when once you do one and say you, you finish a certain position, do you sort of look at it as, okay, well, I've done the C1, I've got the K1, that's where my strength is, or like, kind of, does it help you sort of, I guess, on that momentum side of things, which is important in so many sports that you can learn from one to take into the, the next one, even though they're, you know, slightly different? Yeah, when, it, when you're racing it, helps a little bit because you might get to see the course in the C1 do the quals in the morning and then when it gets to the afternoon in the K1 you kind of know like oh that move is a little bit easier than it looked from the bank and all right that gate's a little bit low I need to give a little bit of space there but at the same time you're on the start line for the the kayak qualification run at the World Cup and every other guy in front and behind of you is also they've just done a 15 minute warm-up today and they're fresh but you might have done two race runs that morning Plus, you know, warm-ups, warm-downs for both race runs, all the mental prep for it. Um, so all of a sudden, if you don't make it through on your first run of quals, you, your qualification day at a World Cup can end up being four race runs long. That's, you know, wow. four whole mental exams of preparing for a run and, you know, doing the race, absorbing the emotions and, like, mediating, like, damage control if you have to go back and then make a plan if you need to race again. Which I can imagine the mental aspect with any sport we love hearing about on the show, but the mental training that goes involved in, in slalom. I mean, is there a, something you do yourself, Dan, that kind of helps you to kind of, you know, get focused at the, the top of the, the course or sort of a more in the lead up? I mean, sort of what are some of the mental things that you do to get prepared? Um, I've lately kind of found that I've been keeping it fairly relaxed and just letting, letting myself you know, kind of step into that flow state when I start racing a little bit more naturally. I'm not trying to really force anything. Uh, what I put all my time and energy into is mental rehearsal of the race run. So I want to be able to sit there on the start line, picture myself at any one gate, shut my eyes and be able to picture myself sitting in that gate and be able to imagine, a, imagine I'm looking out the river and being able to see the gates and look down the river and see the gates and just know so at any point in my race run, if I looked over my shoulder, I'd know exactly what I'm looking at. And I can imagine then too, using that throughout a course that if all of a sudden, you know, a gate doesn't go to plan, you hit it, you know, you've, you've kind of screwed up at a section. It's not letting that dwell. I can imagine it's okay. That was one as long as I get to the bottom too. So I can imagine there's a lot of training that needs to go involved in that, keeping that mental state, as you're saying, in, in the middle of an actual uh, run. Yeah, and I think a lot of people get caught up with trying to uh, picture a perfect run and a perfect way of doing every single gate. And then when they get off that perfect line, they're not really sure, like they hadn't really planned to be offline and they don't really know how to recover. So, yeah, I like to just know exactly where every gate is and let it happen a little bit more naturally, not really have a plan of exactly how I'm going to do every gate, but know exactly where it is. So when I come into it, I can just let it flow, do what I feel is right in the moment. And then wherever I come out of that gate, I know exactly where the next one is and I can just work and manage the whitewater the whole way down because there's no like perfect run or perfect way to do the sport. It's just how to manage the mistakes you make on the way down, I guess. What was that moment like for you through, you know, Rio to Tokyo and kind of that qualification period and, and did the whole year delay help or hinder 
your, uh, I guess, lead into the Olympics? I think it probably helped me because I was on the younger end um, at 2020. So I had an extra year of training and, you know, my progression was still very much on the uphill and still quite a steep uphill. You know, I wasn't plateauing in my career. So an extra year on paper should have really helped me. I mean, it's hard to really say. At the same time, though, it was it was a long year. You know, it was it was COVID year. It was training in the cold, you know, on your own. Why every other athlete who's not going to the Olympics is like, cool, well, I'll take a year off. Um, so I guess that whole side of things, you know, I did a whole winter in Tasmania. was training through the winter in Tassie. I hadn't done that since I was 16. Um, so that side was hard, but having an extra year, I think, was good in the end. Had you qualified before they were delayed or did you qualify sort of uh, after the delay or during no, the delay? I, I qualified in February of 2020. Wow. So, so. I, had a, I, had a, I had a little honeymoon period of about two weeks where it was like, wow, you've qualified. We're going to the Olympics in six months. Then, it, then about two weeks later, it was like, oh, no, the world's shut down. Go yeah. <laughs> Which, because the thing that we've, we, we have a lot of Canadian guests on the show, and of course they were the first country to pull out of the games before it was postponed. And Australia was number two before it was then postponed. So, I mean, I can imagine there's that little period where you know you've qualified, but then there's a potential that these could go ahead without Australia. So, like, kind of what was that little period like? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I mean, by the time the lockdown actually happened. Um, yeah, I think it was, yeah. The weirdest thing was I was up in Sydney training at the time and we could pretty much see how the world was going and all of the athletes were going, yeah, we're not going to Europe this year. Yeah, the games are definitely getting cancelled. But meanwhile, all the, you know, coaches and the staff and the AOC and the IOC were all going, no, 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 it'll be fine. It'll go ahead. This is going to blow over. This is going to blow over. It's going to go ahead. It's going to go ahead. And we're all sitting here going like, it's not going to, but we're like, we're keeping training, but, but like kind of got like a shoe out the door. And then I think the Tassie border shut. And then the day after that, they were like, oh, no, the games are postponed. And then I was like, oh, could have said that a day ago. And I wouldn't have had to do two weeks quarantine when I got back to Tassie. <laughs> and I was like, I knew, I knew that was going to happen anyway. But like, you know, we were just, we were just sitting there for a couple of weeks there. Yeah. And then at that point, like it was pretty clear that, you know, COVID was quite serious and it was you know going to take a massive impact on the game. So, you know, I had a solid break at that point, uh, you know, instead of just you know pushing rocks uphill, just had a real good break through the winter and then, yeah, cracked on training pretty hard after that once it started looking like stuff was going to happen and, you know, the games would be postponed and Australia would hopefully be going. Which but then yeah, must have been a great feeling come 2021 when – you board that plane or you get sort of the, the equipment, the the clothing, all that kind of fun stuff that, you know, with that extra delay and everything that you're talking about. But do, do you take a moment at any point to sort of just go, damn, I'm an Olympian. This, this is happening. Oh yeah. There was lots of, uh, lots of moments like that. And, you know, that's why it was really nice having a little honeymoon period as well, where I got to really enjoy what was just meant to be a completely normal Olympic game selection, you know, for a couple of weeks. And I was like, cool, I'm going to be an Olympian. Like, how good is this? And, you know, then probably a year later you go on, cool. Like I actually am going to become Olympian. It's actually going to happen. Like everything's looking good. You know, we've got the uniform. Great. We're on the plane. Awesome. You know, we're in the village. How good is this? You know, it's coming to life. So there's lots of moments like that along the journey. And do you then get involved? Obviously Tokyo 
incredibly unique games and you've obviously got nothing really else to compare it to, but do you soak up the Olympic atmosphere where you can? Like, I mean, the, the village, are you doing pin trading? Like, uh, you know, bumping into Kevin Durant or something like that? Like, I mean, are you kind of soaking up all those little moments as well? Uh, I was trying to soak them up as, as much as I could, that's for sure. But, yeah, it wasn't the, you know, the village that I'd heard about. And, you know, there was definitely a lot of moments that I, you know, heard happen during the games that was not able to partake in, which was definitely disappointing. But it was, you know, it was an incredible experience. It was just very different to what I expected it to be. And also, we obviously talk a little bit sometimes about the attention that athletes obviously get in an Olympics because, say, a sport like canoe slalom maybe doesn't get attention to, say, swimmers are getting sort of in an Olympic cycle. But you've obviously got a certain person in your sport by the name of Jess Fox, which brings a little bit of attention to the sport as well. So is that sort of a, a help or a hindrance where you come to an Olympics, you've got a few probably more cameras on you than some other sports because of Jess? And, I mean, do you sort of soak that up and go, cool, well, more people are going to watch me right now, people are going to take notice of this, or does it kind of hinder you a bit more pressure? Uh no, I think it's good. I, for me personally, I don't really feel like the pressure too much. And I kind of like it. I go, well, we're actually, you know, getting some airtime at the moment. Like, you know, people are looking, people are listening. Like, this is really cool. Um, and I guess if you were worried by it, you'd just make it worse because it's going to happen regardless. So it might as well steer into it and try and make the most of it. And, you know, I was the whole time in the lead up to the games just jumping on all kind of PR and like social um, and like media opportunities that popped up because a bunch of stuff comes your way. And I thought, you know, go for everything. It's a great opportunity. Um, no such thing as bad publicity and doesn't always happen in our sport every four years. If you're lucky enough to be the one who goes to the games, you might as well enjoy it. For sure. And you do all right then in the heats to uh, kind of go in at, at number two, which I mean, does it again, pressure, things like that. You, you're kind of looking at that going like, oh, well, this is, this is where I'm meant to be. This is, this is going on, bring it on. Like, does that kind of help you going into the semis and then the finals? Uh, I think every race run I did, I felt less and less pressure and less and less nerves. The first one was like, oh, you know, we're here at the games, like don't stuff it up through the quals. And then by the time I got to the semis and, did that great run in the semifinals and qualified for the finals in second place. When I was sitting on the start line of the final, I was the most relaxed thing I'd ever been in a race. I was like, this is the biggest racing moment of my life. But I was like, I set the goal of making the final. I've made the final. Um, you know, my goal wasn't like gold and I'm just constantly picturing me on like a podium. What I wanted to do was be in the final. That gives me an opportunity to anything can happen now that I'm in the final and then just go don't be reserved, go out there and do the absolute best you can, throw it all out there and not be in your own head, be able to sit there on the start line and look around and like take in the atmosphere. That was my goal and I got to do that. And when I got to the final, I did that and didn't go to plan, but I did everything I wanted to do and I got to enjoy it and I wasn't just a nervous wreck. You mentioned that attention because I, I remember it vividly, the fact that, you know, Channel 7 basically stopped everything. It was like, boom, let's see this. We've got Dan in the final. Let's go. And sort of like everybody was kind of talking about it. I remember on our episode that day how much we were talking about it, which, you know, ninth in your first Olympic Games, you know, obviously saying that it didn't go to quite plan in the final. But, I mean, I'm sure you walk away from Tokyo going, wow, I just got a top 10 in Olympics. The world is my oyster now. Oh, absolutely. It's exactly how I felt after it and, yeah, really proud of my efforts and happy how it planned out in the end. And does that then just, I mean, obviously looking towards another cycle now, uh, you know, where at the time of recording this less than just under two years away from Paris, but I mean, is it just straight away you, you kind of 
take up the the excitement of an Olympics a little bit and then kind of just wait straight away switch focus or do you allow a bit of time off and then kind of get straight back into it? Well, I've personally taken a big chunk of time off. Uh, most people kind of took a bit of time off and went back into it. I wanted to step away from the sport for an entire year and not do a European season, which is what I'm doing now. And then, yeah, I'm just going to bring my focus back at the end of the year and hopefully it's still on track. You know, I got back in the boat a little bit in the middle of the year for nationals and still was on pace with the rest of the boys after eight months off. So hopefully this next bit of time I've had off won't change that. And, you know, I've just been keeping fit, doing a lot of off-season base training and then, you know, coming into the summer for the domestic season to get back in the boat and really switch that focus back over. I've I've got to ask with with Jess obviously winning the gold. I mean, I, I saw your post on Instagram, sort of celebrating that and kind of what that meant to you and sort of the canoeing team in general. But I mean, what was that like to kind of uh, you know experience that and kind of celebrate uh, you know with that sort of stuff? Because I mean, the pressure that was obviously on her after what happened in in the first race with her was immense. But I mean, obviously relief for all of you, celebration. You've probably known Jess for a long time, so to be able to be there and experience that with her. Yeah, it was really cool to be a part of that and see that happen. You know, Australia's first gold canoeing medal. Um, you know, the first time we've had women's canoeing in the Olympic Games. Like, yeah, it was really cool to be a part of it and watch that unfold. And yeah, really awesome to see Jess perform under that pressure because it was, as you said, an immense amount of pressure. And, you know, the day before or the two days before when she got bronze, it was like, you know, Every news article we saw everywhere, it was like, oh, the nation morning just didn't win. And I'm like, how's that? You know, like if I got a bronze, like every article would be like, Dan Watkins has got a bronze, like came out of nowhere. How good's that? You know? So I was like, the pressure she was under was absolutely immense. And to see it just blast through and do such an incredible run as well on the day, it was awesome to be right there live watching that. Because we are, yeah, that day, I remember we were very flat on this show, but then when she won the gold, I think. Jared and myself, one of our co-hosts, we voted that moment as the best of the games because it was just, yeah, the, the pressure and the relief and everything just from a spectator's perspective. But just for the sport in general, though, you know, how big of a deal is that there moving forward? Are you seeing a lot more juniors now signing up, seeing Jess's success and kind of going that? Because it's not like Jess is the first to win an Olympic medal uh, in, in canoe slalom, of course. It's, it's happened before. And, of course, Robin Bell won a bronze in, in the men's side of things back in Beijing. So, I mean... Are you seeing a flow-on effect with this additional exposure that Jess has brought to the sport? Um, I don't actually know too much. Uh, I think there is definitely more exposure to the sport itself, but in the actual side of, uh, you know, development and, you know, if we're getting more kids getting into the sport now or not, if there's more a big inflow of, like, girls getting into the sport, I'm not actually sure how that's going. Um, not really keeping up the sport at kind of a club level, but I'd like to think so. For sure. Do we do we need to send a shout out there though, Dan? Like, I mean, uh, you know, we need to get some. If you're excited, go to your local club. You know, look it up in the online to see where you can go and give it a try. Yeah, absolutely. Look up your local canoe club and uh, yeah, give them a contact in Hobart. The Don't Canoe Club definitely offers canoe slalom. Anywhere in Sydney, uh, you know, Penrith and uh, Penrith Valley Canoeing Club would be a great place to start. Which is exciting with the prospect of Brisbane. I mean, ultimately for yourself, I mean, I don't know if you sort of look at that as a great opportunity for a home Olympics pushing forward, but obviously that means an additional facility that will now be coming in, in Australia. So 
Is that a, an additional exciting prospect that you're not just going to have, obviously, Penrith, which is itself a great facility, but now that there will be another facility coming in the future? Um, yeah, I'm not incredibly excited because it's still just another man-made artificial complex which requires water to be pumped for it to be trained on. And, you know, we're talking Penrith, we're pumping something like 13 tonnes per second up five metres of elevation. So if you can imagine the electricity costs to run that. Um, half of, you know, half of our funding goes to paying for training costs. So it's going to be great to have another venue, but it's still going to limit the sport in the same way as Penrith does now, which is, it's not very affordable to get into the sport in somewhere like Sydney because you have to pay, you know, $40 just to go train for one hour. Wow. Um, you know, where down in Tassie, you can just jump on the river, go for a paddle and, you know, you can paddle for three hours if you want. If you're just out for the weekend or, you know, duck out after school any time of day and jump on the river and, you know, expand your learning. It's, it's interesting so, yeah. to think that. Yeah, it's kind of it's not something, a perspective that maybe gets put out there a little bit. And also, too, I guess from a sustainability point of view, I guess you've got to try and find certain ways there to, you know, uh, in, in well, one, yeah, the way we're living today, of course, as well. That's that's one thing that I do think about. Um, and I think probably one of the few in the sport who's thinking about that. But, you know, Penrith, it's in Western Sydney. It's They run on coal. So we're paddling on a coal-powered river where it could be in Tassie, on a river that just runs for free, you know, as a tail race of a, like a hydro system. So yeah, that's something that definitely sticks in my mind. There's not exactly always great answers because at the same time, Penrith is the venue that's most closest to what world cups are raced on and all the venues uh, that any of the next Olympics are going to be on are going to be closest to Penrith. So that's kind of where the training is, but finding a balance. I guess I know Penrith has been confirmed to host the 2025 20, World Cup, and part of the clause is that they have to be running the stadium off renewable energy right. to host, like by that 2025 World Championships, which is pretty exciting. So put solar or you know just pay to connect only to solar sources and renewable sources through the grid, yeah. one or the other. For sure, for sure, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how they sort of, yeah, handle that with, with Brisbane now 10, 10 years away. A couple of things I want yeah. to ask just before we get to our closing questions, Dan. The boat, I mean, I don't know how many of these you go through. Do you just sort of have like one that you use? And if so, if it's just like one, is, do you give it a name? Do you kind of talk to it on the way down? Is that sort of a thing that slalom athletes do? Um, I think some people name their boat and, you know, talk to it and, you know, almost personify their boat in ways. I kind of don't do any of that stuff, but yeah, we go through quite a few boats once we get to the top of the sport, um, maybe going through two boats a season. So that's just because once you get to the highest level of the sport, you, you can really feel, you know, the response between a six and a 12 months and a brand new boat. Um, and there is just, there is a little bit of time in that, in a race run. So you, it's something that, you can control, so you're better off getting a new boat because you might be paddling quicker. You know, you might still make a mistake, but if everything goes perfectly, it might go perfectly and 1% faster. Um, so, yeah, I got my Olympic boats when I got selection. I got two boats, so I had a spare boat for the Olympics and I could pick which one felt best because every boat is almost slightly custom because they come out of a mold and then they're 
hand cut and then hand joined together. So every boat is slightly different and no boats identical to each other. So I got these two Olympic boats, tried them out, see which one I like best. And then COVID happened. I went back to my old boat, trained in that for the next probably 14 months just to keep my two boats fresh. Once the start of the 2021 season came about, I picked which boat I liked best and I actually shipped it to Japan and then took the other boat to Europe and raced my spare boat in Europe. And then I didn't start paddling my race boat until I actually landed in Japan. So we had that maybe four weeks before the game started. So that boat was only really four weeks old in terms of use when I raced it at the games. Insane. Wow, that's crazy. And I guess in terms of repairs, I mean, famously, Jess used what condoms to help fix the boat. Like, is that is that a common thing that you've got to find something if you've got a problem with the boat to kind of fix it? Yeah, we have to fix all our gear ourselves at some World Cups. You know, there's manufacturers there, but yeah, generally we've got to fix all our gear ourselves. I broke the tail of my Olympic race boat maybe three or four days out from the games and I repaired that myself and, you know, had to smooth that out and fix that. And yeah, I ended up racing that boat with a repair on the tail um i had a couple of uh, t-grips which are the wooden t-pieces on the top of the single blade canoe paddle i had a couple of those break off in the final days of training and i had to glue them back on and it's just something you grow up doing and you kind of get used to everyone knows how to you know work with epoxy resins and lay up lay wow. up uh you know carbon fiber and play with that kind of always fixing it up. That's fascinating because I, I love those tinkering aspects of certain sports where you, you've got little things you can do and kind of fixing it that way. I, I have to ask though, Dan, I mean, brought it up at the very beginning, but the attention you got, the whole Brad Pitt of canoe slalom, like, <laughs> I mean, it's a bit of fun, a bit of laugh, obviously saying your mates bring it up and that sort of stuff. But I mean, how, how does that even get brought to you? Does somebody just like a mate go like, oh, this is what they're calling you. This is what they're saying and all this kind of stuff. And does that does that lead to anything? You talk about potential opportunities. Are you going to be the face of some sort of, you know, great new product now because uh, you are this, you know, new great athlete, the Brad Pitt of canoe slalom? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of funny how it came about. Um, it was – there was one American journalist in 2019 who was doing um, – background you know profiles for people who are potentially going to make the games and you know this was in spain at the world championships and she said something along the lines of that and it was just her just she's the only one who said it and she just put it in her notes and then when this profile popped up when i did make it to the games all of a sudden everyone started saying it and it just it blew up and i couldn't believe it i was like what is this and then, yeah, the whole social media side of it as well, they were just getting messages flying through. It was really funny ask, thing to be a part of. Did you of. get some of those? Like, I can't imagine some of those messages you probably got after that. <laughs> it was it was interesting. It was really funny to just sit back and, like, you know, be a part of that and watch that unfold. You know, it was not something I'd seen before, um, you know, kind of going on the water to race a final run and then, you know, coming out and having 200 DMs in 10 minutes that you're on the water. <laughs> wow. That's, that's insane. But it's exposure, right? Like, I mean, publicity, that's, that's helping it somehow. Like there's well, got to be endorsement no, deals you can get from this. There's, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And I think that was far from bad publicity. Yeah. I think if Brad Pitt is listening, big listen to the show, of course, I mean, you could do some sort of get him in the boat, put him out there. I'll be, I'll be a stunt double if he ever has to kayak in a movie. Exactly. Well, there you go. It would work out perfectly. It would kind of balance yeah. it out. That That's absolutely crazy. One more thing I read, uh, you like to try and take four months off a year to just live in a van. 
and and basically do your thing. Is this something you still do? And I mean, is that just the best part of your year when you get to do that? Um, I think that's. I'm not really taking four months off of the sport a year to live in my van. I'm just living in my van four months a year, um, just because you know I'm from Tassie, but I have to spend a lot of time in Sydney. It's expensive. I'm kind of a back and forth. You know, I can't really afford to rent up there because I'm always all over the shop. So I've generally just live out of my van when I am in Sydney and I was living out of my van when I raced Olympic selection and when I was wow. training after that and when I came back up in 2021 in the lead up until I went to Europe I was living out of my van wow is it again do you, is it van got a name is this like the van you've had for a long long time done you well served you over your career um I've had a few vans but yeah they do they do get names not like the boats <laughs> so the van I was last living in before the Olympic Games was Karma. Karma. Nice. Yep. I like that. Wow. Awesome. That's, I mean, sounds like an idyllic life to me, just being able to live out yeah. of a van. I mean, God, people would kill for that. That, that. That's awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun. Dan, we wrap up with a set of uh, fun Get to Know You Style questions. As always, these are uh, questions based off a questionnaire given to Team Canada as well as uh, well, Team Canada and Pyeongchang and Rio. And the questionnaire I'm using for this one I'm sure you know him well. You competed against him in Tokyo, Mr. Cameron Smedley. Yeah, uh, uh, yep. Familiar with Cam much? Get to uh, hang out with him much on the circuit, do you? Yeah, I have. I know Cam pretty well. Perfect. Well, I can compare some of your answers then to see, or maybe you can guess what he would have uh, said for some of these uh, answers as well. As always, if, you, if you're inclined, there's a drawing element. You don't have to do it. If you're feeling adventurous after this interview and want to send some homework, uh, the elements here, you can draw a picture of yourself, Draw a picture of a, a Canadian animal, but obviously we'd get you to do an Australian animal. And uh, what would the coolest Olympic medal look like? So how, how are your drawing skills? Got any uh, talent in the drawing area? Not particularly. All right. But, uh, well, yeah, we'll if see. If you feel up to it, if you feel up to it, Dan, no pressure. I'll start off with the first question. If you could choose any Olympic host city, where would it be? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Where would I want to go? It's a hard one. Do I want to go, you know, pick a city that I would just like to be in or somewhere where games has been, where it was really awesome, mm, that I would have loved mm. to be in that era. Eh, that's a hard one. Um, we like the pressure. We like putting the yeah, pressure yeah, on the guests. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think just uh, a European Olympics yep. would be pretty cool. Somewhere in Central Europe, like Paris would be a good one. could be any of a number of cities, but I think it's just, you know, very centrally located and it's a place I spend a lot of time and, you know, it's a quite a nice climate for a summer Olympics. That's a good one, good way of looking at it. I mean, I keep saying about Brisbane, of course, it's technically going to be a Winter Olympics being held in now July, right? So, um, yeah. you know, Brisbane winter, a little bit different though. Um, the weirdest instruction a coach ever gave you was? Ooh. Um, get some get some weird ones in uh, canoeing. A lot of, you know, a lot of hip moving and hip thrusting instructions go along and see one. Wow. Okay. Thrusting those hips. Right, yeah. they, can be, okay. they can be pretty funny when a coach is trying to explain that on the bank and you're sitting in your boat. <laughs> <laughs> particularly if maybe someone's walking past going, what's that guy yelling at him about hip yeah, thrusting? Yeah. What's going on here with that one? Uh, what is your favorite workout? 
Uh, favorite workout would be anything that's not really a workout that I can consider a workout, like going for a mountain bike. Good answer. Or, Just you don't know, break the collarbone though. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One, one where you don't fall off. Perfect. Yeah. Good, good answer. Uh, if you could have lunch with any one person, who would it be? Oh, that's a that's a tricky one. I always uh, suck at these questions because <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely not got someone off the top of my head. You know, Pretty well, much. I can see Cam said uh, Chris Hadfield, which, if I'm not mistaken, is that a Canadian astronaut, right? That would sing like. Um, uh, David Bowie in space and kind of all those sort of things are a bit famous. So, um, yeah, that was his answer. Uh, no pressure yeah, on these, Dan. If you don't have an answer, it's fine. We can move on. It's all good. You're not going to fail the interview. Uh, no one has yet. So oh, Great, great. Well, Good. Yeah, no pressure on that aspect. You. <laughs> Your favourite, well, here you go, favourite sandwich. Do you have a favourite sandwich you like to uh, put down the gullet? Uh, I... I always go for a smash falafel at Subway. Ooh, and nice. I've, uh, I've been doing that repetitively. I have to Good say that's going to be the favorite sandwich. Yeah. Fala- oh, yeah. It's been a while since I had one of them. I like that. Nice answer. Uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, I reckon can't go past time travel or teleportation. And yes. either one I'd be happy with. And I could, you know, make do with either one. I reckon so. Would you time travel? Would you go to the past? Would you go to the future? What would you prefer there? I I think I'd go to the past and just like, you know, if I was about to fall off my mountain bike and break my collarbone, I'd just <laughs> rewind a little bit, you know. Um, I'd, I'd definitely I'd definitely abuse it. I'd, I'd go I'd go back in the past and you know bet some money on some some big races Absolutely. or something, you know, and then just yep. make a bunch of money and continue living my life normally, but yep. without any work. Exactly. Invest in Apple when they first started or something yeah, like that. Exactly. You know? I'll be running all those schemes, I reckon. All those things. Absolutely. I'm there with you. Um, the best candy in the world is? Uh, what am I really enjoying at the moment? I've been really enjoying caramel chocolate lately. Nice. Good answer. And do you get that into the um, the Whitakers while you're in New Zealand at the moment uh, over the dairy milk or the, the Cabris? Or? I, yeah, definitely had some caramel Whitakers last night. Yeah, yeah well, good timing. There you go. That yeah. was one of the perks in New Zealand. Had Whitakers. to, had to, had good to. Good chocolate. You know, just got here. Yeah. Well, you have to get into it. Uh, as a kid, your favourite sports team was? Um, as a kid, I followed AFL and was a Bombers fan. Ah, right. Are you still a Bombers fan, Dan? I guess technically, though I don't really follow uh, <laughs> anymore. And that's the answer for most Bombers fans at the moment, isn't it? So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that kind of works. Your favorite sports movie is uh, Cool Runnings. Good answer. Yes, classic. Can't go past I it. Can't it. go past it. Can't go past it. I'm trying to think. Are there any? Canoe slalom, like movies with canoe slalom in it. Not that I can think of. I don't know if there's documentaries out there on it or. Not that I can like think that. of. Yeah, there'd be some docos out there. There'd be Surely some kayaking scenes in some movies, but. Yeah. yeah. I was trying to relate to if James Bond's done it. You generally know your sports made it, but I, yeah, Bond hasn't canoed. So. Um, yeah. 
There was um the movie The River Wild, which was sort of a uh, you know Meryl Streep, Kevin Bacon, kind of them going down a, a river, which was you know Whitewater Rapids and everything. Uh, so that's a pretty epic movie if you've never seen that. So um so I think it was probably released the year you were born if I'm if I'm doing my calculations correctly. Yeah, so. right. well, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely movies that have uh, you know got canoeing in them, but yeah. uh, you know I wouldn't say it's like my favorite. You know, Deliverance had a canoe, but. There you go. Yeah, Until Brad Pitt does it, Dan. Film. Until Brad Pitt does it, you know you got to you got to put it out there. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Look, right now I got to go to Queenstown because that's what I'm doing for a little bit. Yeah, but, it's uh, a beautiful yeah. spot. Queenstown's amazing, isn't it? Off the back of that, I would like to you know see Chile someday. Live there for a little yep. bit. Great, great kayaking. Great waterfalls. Crystal clear blue know. water. Good to know. Yeah. Which, I mean, how does Tassie rate on the world white water scheme with those natural places you were talking about? Like, do we have a bit of a hidden gem that we should be putting out there for more world competitions to come to Tassie? We have like a little bit of a hidden gem in the natural rivers systems, but we incredibly inconsistent with when they flow. So anywhere right. else in the world that's really known for their rivers, you can go there and they've got snow melt or they've got like a really stable spring or autumn or winter where tassie it's kind of like you know you can go tell people oh tassie has amazing white water and they go cool i'm going to come for a week and you're like you might not even paddle if you're here for a week you know you just got to be there and be like all right it's raining let's go kayaking (laughs) where anywhere else in the world you could go i'm just going to go to norway for one week or i'm going to go to california for one week or chile for one week and you'd be able to paddle every single day guaranteed right Okay, interesting. Fascinating to learn that. Dan, mate, it's been so much fun learning about your career and everything else involved in canoe slalom. As I said, you're our first canoe slalom athlete on the show, so fascinated to learn all about that. If people want to follow your journey in the lead-up to Paris and beyond social media, where can they keep up to date with you? Uh, Instagram's the best bet. It's uh, Dan underscore Watkins. Beautiful. And don't send him message or 200, like maybe one or two, just like, how you doing? Brad Pitt's my favorite actor, but just not 200 a day is a bit much, right? Give him a break. All right. Uh, Dan, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for your time on the show today. All righty. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. And a massive, massive thanks to Dan for his time there. And uh, it's a great little insight there into how the wilderness in Tassie works with the weather. Definitely a a real uh, situation there. And if you haven't had Willie Smith's, uh, if you're uh, in Tasmania, check it out. Pretty decent. We are the Apple Isle, so we're very renowned for our Apple-based products, cider and the like. So uh, head down to Grove, check it out. Beautiful part of the state, the Huon Valley, just south of Hobart. So uh, by all means, check it out and get involved there. But Dan, great to have him on the show. And yeah, the messages, calm them down. Just, uh, you know, maybe one or two every now and then I'm sure he would appreciate. But uh, definitely the attention. The first time and probably the only time I'll ever interview Brad Pitt. So uh, there you go. That's uh, ticked off my bucket list. And actually just a note too on Dan, since we did that interview, which of course was several months ago, he's actually announced his retirement from the sport. So uh, obviously we'd like to wish Dan all the luck moving forward in his post-athletic 
Korea. We've got some great stuff coming your way, though. We're only a couple episodes away from a clip show, which we're excited to bring you, of course, the best of part six, our 300th episode, where we will celebrate all the moments that have come before this from episode 251 right through to 299. We're on 298 at the moment, so uh, only a couple of episodes away from that. Next episode, though, we are returning to the sport of speed skating, and we're going to be chatting to a great athlete who's had a bit of success at the Olympic Games. So a nice little uh, interview to tie you off before we get into the clip show. So I won't give too much away, but uh, I always get pumped for speed skating. So that will be coming your way next episode here on Off the Podium. If you want to stay up to date with everything we've got going on, you can, of course, subscribe to the show. All the good podcast platforms out there. Mash the subscribe button. Never miss an episode. You can also see the video version of this interview on YouTube. Search for Off The Podium on YouTube. Subscribe while you are there and you can also see all the video interviews that we have posted as well. And social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Follow us on all of those. Send us a message. Let us know what you think of the show. We'd love to hear what you think, who you want on the show, any ideas out there for future episodes involving myself, Colin and Jared. We want to hear it all. So make sure you get in contact with us and let us know what you are thinking of the show. Big thanks again to Dan for his time. As always, a shout-out goes to the Birmingham Bull. My name is Ben. This has been Off the Podium. Remember to go left and fizzle dizzle!